Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1681, James Crawford, the first royal historiographer of Scotland, surveyed the kingdom's intellectual and cultural situation and was unimpressed. He wrote, I can take no pleasure in numbering up our glorious ancestors or in boasting of our past, being truly sensible how unhappy we have been of late. We meet with none of our refined wits in the courts abroad, nor of our eminent professors in their universities to welcome us in our travels. We have no foreign ministers among us, nor send we any beyond sea. Strangers now have no occasion to come within our borders, and we seem to be, in all respects, cut off from the society of mankind. But Crawford wrote at more or less the beginning of what my guest Kelsey Jackson-Williams terms the first Scottish Enlightenment. In his book of the same name, Jackson-Williams argues that what's usually termed the Scottish Enlightenment, Presbyterian or agnostic, interested in philosophy, centered upon the cities and universities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, benefited from an earlier creative phase, which was Catholic or Episcopalian, interested in history, and centered on the Scottish Northeast. Kelsey Jackson-Williams is lecturer in early modern literature at the University of Stirling, where he is also co-director of the Pathfoot Press, the university's center for letterpress printing, teaching, and learning. Kelsey Jackson-Williams, thank you for being a part of Historically Thinking. And thank you very much for having me, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, there's... Um, we could dive deep, probably too deep, too fast into this, and I, I thought we would um, move, we would click the telescope back a little bit, uh, and for the even the educated layperson sometimes is um, a little bit bewildered by the number of enlightenments that scholars talk about. Um, they there is they in their head there is the enlightenment. Um, they might know. Uh, Immanuel Kant and his essay for what, 1784, something like that, Auf Klarung, um, you know, going beyond the, be, no longer uh, holding on to the, the apron of tradition, the apron strings of tradition. Um, but the French Enlightenment, sure. Scottish Enlightenment, all right. But first Scottish Enlightenment, American Enlightenment, German Enlightenment, this is all too much. And that, that's not even the radical Enlightenment, the conservative Enlightenment. So, so what is, what's your definition of Enlightenment? Uh, I got you. Easier question to ask than it is to answer. Actually, I was thinking of the plurality of enlightenments, thinking about these complexities and how bewildering they can be when you're first getting into the literature of the field. I remember a number of years ago now, first beginning to get to grips with the historiography surrounding the enlightenment and reading uh, John Robertson's fantastic about 50-page historiographical <laughs> introduction to his case for the enlightenment. Just thinking to myself, Good Lord, how can I even begin to get to grips with the <laughs> number of opinions, the number of approaches, the, the number of different ways of understanding whatever we mean by enlightenment? So what's my definition? To some extent, my definition is probably reductive and might even beg the question, but I'm not sure that makes it either worse or better than anybody <laughs> else's. Uh, it's not Kant's, though. Uh, Kant's having the courage to use your own understanding, Kant's whole idea of enlightenment as a sort of self-acting reason, uh, mm -hmm. moving beyond tradition, thinking rationally, 
is in some ways a very poor definition of enlightenment, even by the standards of the 18th century. It's too abstract. Depending on how you apply well, it, 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 it's good for all of many periods before the 18th century, or it's not even really good for the 18th century. Right, right. Uh, so I'd rather go for something a little bit, I'm not sure if concrete's the word, but a little bit broader and easier to pin down. For me, the enlightenment is really the long intellectual moment, which is a response to the decay of truths, which were considered, broadly speaking, to be axiomatic for the Renaissance. For me, the point at which what we might call Renaissance thinking, the point at which that begins to collapse, to fall in on itself, to be doubted, that's where enlightenment comes in. It's the set of ways of thinking that move beyond that. And that's something that starts in the 17th century, goes to the 18th, even into the 19th. It's a gradual change, but it is a change nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, um, as you move earlier into the 17th century and you get closer to that thing we call the, the Renaissance, um, then you realize that uh, sometimes Renaissance looks an awful lot like the Enlightenment. Oh yes, um, but you do need one for the other. Um, they 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 operate. They're, they're, they're as you you suggest. The Enlightenment is bouncing off the Renaissance. Yeah, it's it absolutely is. Really it. Yeah, and I think in a way, the more you understand the one period, the more you can understand the other. Because I came to the 18th century by the avenue of the 17th. My last book was on a solidly 17th century scholar, John Aubrey. And I like to think that that's given me a slightly different perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what, what do we mean by this plethora of enlightenments? I mean, why does there have to be a French enlightenment? Why does there have to be a uh, German enlightenment, uh, an English enlightenment, and a Scottish enlightenment? I think to a great extent, it's because if, as some scholars have done, if we try to come up with a unifying definition of enlightenment, it's going to leave out in the cold movements which very clearly seem relevant to the larger project we're working on, but which manifest themselves in different ways. I think Mm -hmm. this is in part because the enlightenment also coincides with the gradual decay of an international republic of letters and the way we could understand it in the 16th and 17th centuries. Things become with the growth of the vernacular, the decline of Latin, things become more and more centered on language areas or political areas. And that then means that it does make sense to talk about national or regional enlightenments. Yes. We have these specific spheres which are acting in their own ways. Scotland is responding to a very different set of circumstances, a very different cultural and political outlook to France or Germany or Italy. Yes. Um, but then we also have the radical enlightenment in the, of Jonathan Israel and the conservative enlightenment, uh, the one in which uh, everyone reads Spinoza and then the one in which other the others do not. Well, yes, that's exactly. A bit of, that's something of a caricature. I mean, it's a bit of a caricature or, in a, or a summary, depending on how pro <laughs> Jonathan Israel you are. I, I think whatever we might think about Israel's massive project to redefine enlightenment, it should make us stop and think. And I think Israel is right to say that enlightenment can exist along with ideological stances which range very much from a conservative, not if not reactionary viewpoint, to ones mm-hmm. which go to an incredibly radical extremes in terms of how they would like or imagine they could reshape the world. Mm-hmm. And I think those usefully map across the national enlightenments. You can have radical and conservative enlightenments within Scotland, within France. But at the same time, those radical enlightenments, for example, are going to be talking to each other across national borders. 
Yes. Um, and that's why we can have sort of recent work on the Catholic Enlightenment, which uh, 50 years ago, 20, even maybe 30 years ago, would have seemed like a contradiction in terms. Exactly. Um, but uh, not if we think about the variety of, if, uh, let's just say, uh, air quotes around ideological perspectives. Exactly. Um, then, it, then it makes sense. Um, so what's the standard received history, the SRH, as I like to think on the podcast, the standard received history of the Scottish Enlightenment? Um, what have, did you learn first and what are you sort of kicking against? Well, the, I suppose the standard received history, which probably started developing maybe in the 60s or the 70s of the 20th century, uh, sort of coalescing in the form we recognize it today, is very much one that follows on from the Union, follows on from the first Jacobite rebellion in 1715, and says that over the latter part of the 18th century, Scotland becomes this ferment of ideas due to changes in the economy, changes in urbanization, uh, development of an increasingly robust school and university system, development of club culture and this very social, sociable culture in places like Edinburgh and Glasgow, which leads to these great works and great men. It's very much a sort of Carlylean great man version of history in which you have this pantheon from Francis Hutcheson to David Hume to Adam Smith to Hugh Blair, Lord Kames, Lord Hales, all of these prominent white men from urban upper middle class and upper class backgrounds who write substantial tomes, which are then perceived as having a very massive change in the way people think about society and the way they think about politics and economics and culture in Scotland and well beyond it. And I'm not entirely sure I'd even say I drastically disagree with that narrative. I'd like to see some refinements to it. But where I really disagree, what I'm kicking against, is how that narrative views the period before it, how it views mm -hmm. the history of Scotland before this cultural flowering. And historically, that's been that 17th, early 18th century Scotland is a cultural wasteland ravaged by war and intolerance, which really requires this new moderation, this new intellectualism of the Enlightenment to recover. And that's what it is I'm trying to push against. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting. I mean, I heard, I think one of our first emails, I told you, I, I heard a very distinguished scholar, a PhD uh, from the University of Chicago, who did his dissertation on Kant, which, you know, I couldn't do. Um, and so for him, the Scottish Enlightenment is basically David Hume. Yes. Um, and um, so he was like, oh, there are no Presbyterians in the Scottish Enlightenment. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, that's an interesting take. Um, that does that, So so even very, um, very educated, very thoughtful people uh, have uh, strange, sometimes strange views of just the, the, the standard received history of the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, we put your people in and now we're adding Catholics and Jacobites and we'll get to them, the weird Episcopalians uh, to the, to the mix. Um, that becomes very exotic and very, um, very it's a, a very variegated. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, so what had been this intellectual culture of Scotland? Um, did it have one? Yes, it did. Scotland had a really interesting intellectual culture. Uh, so, if we're thinking about the period immediately prior to, say, the hundred years prior to when my book starts, it's an interesting case of flourishing and then a momentary decline, a dip. Crawford, who you quoted at the beginning, is right in a lot of what he says. But to understand why he's saying that, we need to think really about the period, say, 
up to about 1640, maybe from the Reformation to 1640, to understand why he thinks things have gone so wrong. Because that was a period when thousands upon thousands of Scots, possibly one in five able-bodied adult men in Scotland spent at least part of their lives abroad. Scotland <laughs> exports people to a huge extent. Sometimes that's the soldiers, sometimes that's as merchants, but quite often it's the scholars. It's the scholars as intellectuals. And this meant that there was a diaspora of learned Scots all across Europe in the latter part of the 16th, first part of the 17th century. And it was something which became very caught up in Scotland's sense of itself, its sense of its own intellectual culture. So when Crawford is bemoaning that uh, there are no, none of our refined wits in the courts abroad, he's thinking back to a period when there were, nor of our eminent professors in their universities. He's thinking of people like Arthur Johnson or Walter Donaldson or any of these eminent Scots who made a career teaching at universities in France or Germany or further afield. And I suppose to some extent it was the civil wars which put a stop to that, but also it was something to do with the change in Scottish culture. As Scotland moved closer into the intellectual orbit of England in some respects in the middle of the 17th century, as it started rebuilding from the civil wars during the early restoration period in the 1660s, 1670s, we see a little hiatus. There's still cultural activity going on, obviously, but not as rich as it was in the first half of the 17th century. And it's that Crawford's responding to. So I think it's this, this narrative of flowering and decline that lies immediately behind the period I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. Did it have something to do with the movement of, of, the, of the court? I mean, when James, uh, when James I of, of England, as he was, was James VI? Yeah. Or um, when James VI goes, becomes James I of England, um, that movement of the court, he never returns, does he? Um, he returns so it, does briefly, that, but no, no. Briefly. Oh, it's a very good question. And a lot of people have said yes. And for a long time, certainly in the first part of the 20th century, that was a paradigmatic part of the narrative, that the court caused this vacuum of Scottish culture, which never recovered until the 18th century. But I don't think it's quite that simple, not least because we still see a really rich flowering of Scottish intellectual culture up to the civil wars. I think, sure. if anything, it is much more to do with the turmoil of the civil wars, with the really increasing the fractious divisions between different confessions, between different identities within Scotland, that just causes this real moment of cultural disruption. Mm -hmm. And there are, and and in keeping with this one in five, I mean, there Scots are remarkably involved in the Thirty Years' War Absolutely. as well as in the uh, civil wars of, of of the islands, the the war of the three kingdoms. Um, so this sort of goes on until I mean, you make a, a certain point about uh, the Duke of York's arrival in Edinburgh and his um, his plans for. Holyrood. Could you could you talk about that? Because it's a it's a fascinating uh, series of of events. It includes Crawford's appointment as royal historiographer. Absolutely. So I think this is the point where things start to change. Uh, the, so the Duke of York, who becomes James the Seventh and Second. Just in case everybody doesn't have the same painfully intimate familiarity with the Stuarts I have these days, is <laughs> the younger brother of Charles II. He's the son of the executed King Charles I. He's also a Catholic. This causes 
considerable angst on the part of the the political public in both England and Scotland. There are several supposed or real Catholic, anti-Catholic plots going on in the late 1670s, early 1680s in England that's creating a real atmosphere where it's problematic for the king's Catholic younger brother to be in plain view. So effectively what happens is he's packed off to Scotland to run things in Scotland, to let stuff cool down, and hopefully also, I think, to prove a little bit to Charles II that he's capable of being a decent ruler. But what James does, what he starts off there and what he continues as monarch is really something remarkable. He puts all of his royal clout behind a kind of intellectual renaissance in Edinburgh. He founds institutions, he supports intellectual endeavors, and then once he becomes king, he also starts revitalizing Holyrood Palace. This was the old royal palace in Edinburgh. If you've ever been to the city, uh, down at the bottom of the hill, uh, and not really used that much other than by the sort of government officials of the Scottish government uh, for most of the 17th century. When James comes back in, he wants to turn it into something that represents his new monarchy. And his new monarchy, of course, is monarchy, the monarch, monarchy of a Catholic ruling over a predominantly Protestant nation. What that means then is a program of religious toleration but also a program of real cultural change. He brings in a school, uh, a Catholic school into Holyrood. He sets up a printing press. He organizes uh, and continues his brother's project of portraits of the Scottish kings, emphasizing the antiquity of the Stuarts. He creates a whole sphere of cultural action around Holyrood, which then, certainly for Scots on the ground at the time, becomes this symbol, whether good or bad, for the changes James is going to bring about as monarch. And I just want to emphasize, this is a very properly, as it were, counter-reformation Catholic um, project. Absolutely. Uh, it's a... It's a it's a Catholic school, but for uh, students of uh, uh, Protestant students as well. Uh, and the importance of the printing press is is significant. Um, Catholics have now learned to love the printing press. Yes, and use and it to and, great effect. Yes, and use it to great effect. Um, so James is deposed in 1688, very very famously. Uh, but this is this project, this sort of cultural uh, renewal, continues. It does. How? Yes. It continues from the outside. I think in a way it continues precisely because it was so successful while it lasted. The people who became involved in it, the people who became invested in this project, which everybody at the time could see was transforming Scottish culture, are still invested in that. They no longer have the cultural capital that they used to as insiders, but they still have cultural capital amongst the outsiders, amongst the Jacobites, the exiles, the people who fell out on the wrong side after the revolution of 1688. And in a way, that very revo revolution also gives them added impetus to carry on with the project. Now that project becomes a symbol of the politics and the government they were previously a part of. So there, what are some other examples of this? This would be the uh, the, the Bibliotheca Universalis was happening at more or less the same time. It only lasts for a few months, but it's uh, it's important. It is. It's um, absolutely important. It's the first learned periodical in Scotland. Uh, it lasts for all of about one and a bit issues. Uh, like most learned <laughs> periodicals of the era, it's principally book reviews, very long, in-depth, often quite summarizing book reviews. But it starts out as this way, this conduit for allowing Scots to 
become familiar with the latest publishing on the continent. And it gets closed down, unfortunately, precisely due to the tensions that exist around James's court, that exist around this religious plurality. Uh, the Duke of Perth, uh, one of the Catholic converts high up in James's government, takes offense at one of the reviews, which he thinks is anti-Catholic, and revokes the printer's license for it. And his plan is that he'll set up a rival Catholic landed periodical, but there's not time enough for that to come to pass. So why is this uh, issue and a half? Why is it so important? It's important because, again, it's a manifestation of this culture, but it's also a manifestation of Scotland very much aligning itself, imitating, but also participating in European learned culture as a, as a whole in this period. This is the same sort of thing that we're seeing people like Jean Leclerc doing on the continent. It's the same as the Acta Ruditorum, the Journal of the Savants, all of the learned publications that then become synonymous with what we now think of as the early enlightenment in France and the Low Countries. And this is Scotland trying to do the same thing and almost succeeding. And this is also the beginning or, or the time of the beginning of one of tremendously important intellectual institution in Edinburgh and in Scotland, the Advocates Library. Absolutely. Um, so could you describe that? Because that's a, it's a fascinating little anecdote that you describe from 1680 onwards, you, this, this project to create a, a bibliotheque where to many lawyers and others may leave their books. Yes, it's a wonderfully idealistic project. And really what's really wonderful about it is that unlike most of the idealistic projects of the age, it's actually successful. The Society of Advocates was the sort of corporation, the corporate organization of the legal profession in Scotland, centered in Edinburgh. Uh, it had existed since the early 16th century, maybe even earlier, but it had not had its own separate library. And the creation of a library was part of a larger project by the Society of Advocates to try to consolidate its role in Scottish legal education. It's very clear from reading the minute books of the society that the library was one part of a larger plan to try to make it possible to fully educate Scottish lawyers at home. At the time, mm -hmm. to be educated in the law, a Scot had to go to France, had to go to the Low Countries, had to go somewhere else. And this is part of a larger plan, which bears fruit much later in the 18th century. But the first step was creating a library. It's a slow process. They have to find a place to rent it first, then later to buy. They have to furnish it with bookshelves. They have to get advocates initially to donate books, and they have to start buying things in. But over the 1680s, they make this happen. And just at the same time that the revolution is crashing over all the British Isles, uh, George Mackenzie of Rosehawks, very much at the center of the existing government faction, is also the dean of the Society of Advocates, gives a wonderful speech in which he mm -hmm. outlines its goals, its, its status as this universal repository of learning, something for the legal profession, but also something for everyone else, as a sea that the rivers of private libraries can flow into for the public betterment of Scotland. He also says, three branches of learning are the handmaidens of jurisprudence, namely history, criticism, and rhetoric for which reason our catalog abounds in Greek and Roman historians. Um, wow, I wish that was still true. I mean, but, I mean, it certainly gives us both job, it would give us both job security, um, <laughs> as long as there were, as long as there were lawyers. Um, 
So these are these are also then these are far. This is far from the early game in town, and I don't want to give the idea that your study is focused on Edinburgh. It's not at all. In fact, it's focused on what you call the Northland and this rather curious cultural geography of the first Scottish Enlightenment, which you uh, describe as sort of an hourglass. So let's work through the parts of the hourglass. What's at the top of this hourglass? What's the Northland? So the Northland, uh, if we if we picture Scotland in our minds for a moment, uh, basically a square with some twiddly bits at the top and the bottom. <laughs> uh, up at the top right, you have Aberdeenshire, this very large county which projects out into the North Sea. And then you have some smaller counties around either side of it. These are largely ringed by mountains. They're ringed by the Cairngorms on the south, the Central Highland Massif on the west. And so ensconced within this mountainous area is a large plain that gradually descends towards the sea with some hills in it as well, but arable land and land that had been fairly heavily populated since the Middle Ages and before. That's the Northland. It's the North Country, Scotland beyond the mountains. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been, so it's, it, this is the, this is the Scotland of Macbeth. Yeah. Uh, just to give people some, some, some clues. This is the Scotland of, this is Speyside. This is the, uh, the 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 great single malts. Uh, okay, we're, we've got we've got that now. Um, so it's been uh, it, it is a, one of the great centers of medieval Scotland. Um, and who is there driving this sort of this cultural ferment? How can there be cultural development in the countryside? Isn't that completely contrary to everything we know? It is. It is contrary to a lot of what we know, at least a lot of what we assume. But mm -hmm. so much of what we assume is based on the almost axiomatic, the almost unthinking center-periphery model. And it's one you especially see applied in an English context. You have the center that's London, and you have the periphery that's everything else. Yep. And oftentimes you'll see that then translated into Scotland, where the center becomes Edinburgh, or Edinburgh and Glasgow, and the periphery is everything else. But that radial way of thinking just doesn't apply in Scotland, at least not in pre-modern Scotland. Instead, what you have is you have decentralized loci, decentralized places of intellectual activity in Northern Scotland. And that is predominantly in the form of noble estates, uh, whether it's just a modest tower house uh, with a learned family in it, or whether it's something huge and sprawling like the Dukes of Gordon's estate up on the North Coast. Yeah, and please describe, please give, give us the name of the Gordon's estate. That's, uh, well, the whole region is called, uh, well, in early modern Scots, it'd be the Ingi. It's usually pronounced the Inzi now, uh, which extends over a couple of small counties. Uh, the very center is Bogagait, uh, now mostly ruined, but in its time, this vast Baroque palace. So Bogagite is, and it's an, it sounds all these places, in fact, that you describe, at least four of them, are ruins. Yes. Um, so you're dependent upon uh, descriptions of period descriptions, but they're it's, Bogagite's an amazing place. It's stunning. I, the one surviving engraving we have of it from uh, Slazer's Theatrum Scotiae, which is a series of engraved landscapes, if you will, of different locations around Scotland, shows this towering just. Tremendously, to our size, tremendously strange building in a Scottish landscape with these Spanish or Italian loggias around it, formal gardens covered in antique statuary, uh, all with the 
properly medieval Scottish tower house in the centre, somewhere between counter-reformation, between Baroque, between <laughs> Mannerist, something that we would just not recognise as Scottish at all today. Yeah, and with all due apologies to people from space, and this is the back end of nowhere. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is—it could be Iceland, it could be worse, um, it could be Virginia, but this is this is really this is far away from. Uh, this is not Italy. It absolutely is not. We are really talking about the quite literal edge of Europe here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's not the only one. There's uh, you go through the list. There, the, there's the Leslie's uh, sort of stronghold. The, there's the Panmure House where the malls uh, are located, and on and on and on. Yeah, absolutely. This is it's part of the the, hu- the sort of human geography of the North are these grand estates which have built up over generations. And by the time you get to the early modern period, by the time you get to the 16th, the 17th, and 18th centuries, they have sufficient wealth and sufficient power to create things that just, it's not that they don't belong there, but they seem very different to what we're used to. And as you say, they're mostly right. ruins now. This is probably one of the reasons why we don't give them the attention they might otherwise deserve. These families mm-hmm. in the 18th century were pretty consistently on the losing side. Uh, politically, religiously, in every possible way. And sadly, what's the, what this has meant for their houses is if they've not been torched, they've been sold. If they've not been sold, they've been dynamited in the 50s or 60s. Now, the Earls of Panmure, which I mentioned, they are Episcopalians. So we need to explain this is crucial to this cultural geography of the Northland. Uh, what are Episcopalians in Scotland and why are they important? Well, this is a really good question. Uh, if our knowledge it's, 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 it's near and dear to my heart. So, it's a... <laughs> so if our knowledge of Scotland, of 18th century Scotland, is drawn from Outlander, I think we'd be forgiven for thinking it's just Presbyterians and Catholics. But that's not quite true. Uh, as we know, William of Orange deposes James VII and II and becomes the monarch of the multiple monarchy in a protracted war from 1688 to the early 1690s. Now, part of that regime change is the Act of Settlement of 1690, which makes Presbyterianism the established religion in Scotland. Before that, however, and off and on for the majority of the early modern period, Episcopalianism, so government, uh, church government uh, with bishops rather than with presbyters, with elders, is the Scottish standard. And a significant minority of the Scottish Church in 1690 refuses to conform to the new Presbyterian settlement. They then become the Scottish Episcopal Church. They effectively used to be the established church. Now they're a minority, and in fact, a very persecuted minority. But they include amongst their number a huge number of the intellectual leaders of Scotland from immediately before that period. And they're uh, deeply connected with the University of Aberdeen, which is the center of the hourglass. Is that right? Where yes. the, the hourglass sort of bunches together is the city of Aberdeen. So, it, and Aberdeen is important for not just the university, but for the fact that it is a seaport which faces out to the east. Exactly. Aberdeen is the Northeast's connection with the rest of the world. And that has a lot of implications. One is that it's easier to get from Aberdeen to Norway than it is to get from Aberdeen to London. And you see that in the intellectual culture of the area. But what it also means is that the Northeast, as remote as it is, is it still connected to that larger network of North Sea Baltic trade, which really defines the culture of all of Northern Europe during our period. There's ships coming and going daily 
from Danzig, from Stockholm, from Copenhagen, from as far south as Bordeaux and Calais. And that interchange means there's books coming in and out, there's people coming in and out, and really crucially, there are ideas coming in and out. I mean, this, and we can see this all the way. People who are familiar with the life of Immanuel Kant are perhaps familiar with his friend Joseph Green, who is from Kingston on Hall. Okay, so that's that's not Scotland, but the idea is is that 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 coast of the north of England and Scotland they face up up the Baltic, as it were. Yes, um, and they have these connections with the German, the the Germans, the Dutch that the southern England just doesn't have. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a very, very different, uh, very different cultural sphere, and it's one of the reasons you mentioned earlier the number of Scots involved in the Thirty Years' War. It's one of the reasons why that should happen in the first place. It's Scottish mercenaries, Scottish mercenary regiments working for Sweden as much as anything else that make up that Scottish mm-hmm. con- contribution to the Thirty Years' War. Or if you're Leslie's, you're working for the Holy Roman Empire. Exactly. So. Um, so it, it depends, but they're 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 there. Um, they're on on, mo- on both sides. Um, so the university. Um, what's the importance of the university to Scotland at the time? I mean, in in many ways, it strikes me that Aberdeen, up until the 18th century, is the most important of the Scottish universities. But I might be exaggerating. Well, don't say that too loudly, allowing people from St Andrews or Edinburgh. Uh, I know, but still. <laughs> so in the 18th century, Scotland has. Five universities, technically, in four different towns. It has St. Andrews, which is the oldest, 1413, then Glasgow later in the 15th century, Edinburgh in the 16th century. And in between Glasgow and Edinburgh is the first of the Aberdonian universities. This is King's College, founded in 1495. Mm. But in the 16th century, Marshall College is founded as effectively a Presbyterian response to the slightly two Episcopalian, perhaps even Catholic kings. So... They're notionally, in terms of their government, they're two universities, but within one town. In practical terms, Marshall is the Toon College, uh, where Aberdonians themselves are likely to go. Kings is more likely to serve the upcountry. But their importance in Aberdeen is immense because they provide that intellectual center and that training ground that can then send people from these rural locales in Aberdeenshire and Banffshire and Murray out onto the continent out elsewhere in Scotland, as scholars, as soldiers, as politicians, what have you. So, and uh, Marshall College is, um, I'm familiar with it because there's a, a wide range of, of uh, uh, how should I say, Scottish Virginians uh, from, and even beyond George Keith, who is a yeah. uh, friend of William Penn and leads a schism within the Quakers, tries to make it more, uh, tries to create a systematic theology for Quakerism, uh, which doesn't really work, uh, eventually becomes an Anglican missionary, all the way to Adam Stephen, who is Washington's second in command of the Virginia Regiment during the Seven Years' War. Uh, eventually an, a general in the Continental Army, but he begins as a, as at least a BA, I think an MA at Marshall College before going on to get his medical degree at Edinburgh. Yeah. So, so there's uh, the Marshall College people, basically you can't throw a, a brick in uh, 18th century, the 18th century South or, uh, without hitting, American South, without hitting someone who graduated from Marshall College. Uh, a plethora of them also amongst the Anglican clergy in both the Virginia and the Carolinas. Absolutely. Marshall and Kings as well were immense exporters of learned people. And as you say, particularly to the clergy of the colonies. The context of that as well is that even though 
notionally the universities vaguely conform to the 1690 Act of Settlement, they're still very much both Episcopal institutions in the 18th century. And so it's unsurprising that the, the BAs and the MAs that are produced there are much more likely to go into the congenial atmosphere of being Anglican clergymen, uh, at least mm-hmm. within a form of an Episcopalian church in the colonies, than to go into the Presbyterian Kirk in Scotland. So what's the uh, bottom part of the hourglass? The bottom, we've already discussed that, really. The bo- well, but, the bottom part of the hourglass is also the Vegas. It's Europe. It's the continent. But it's some parts of the continent more than others. And one of the points I've tried to make in this book is that while it's fairly well known that Scotland has the old alliance with France in the Middle Ages, that there's a very close political and cultural relationship between Scotland and France in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, My argument is that continues much more than we really supposed well into the 17th and 18th centuries. And that you have people like the Leslies going to the Holy Roman Empire. You have people like uh, the Spinzes or the the Anstruthers going to Sweden. But more than anything, you have people going to France, whether indeed, whether they're Catholic or whether they're Protestant. France still has this incredibly important intellectual draw for Scots in the early 18th century. Um, what about Italy or Germany? They both uh, they both are in the picture, and not but not necessarily as much. With Italy and Germany, you really see the draw in the form specifically for Catholic Scots to the Scots College at Rome or to the Scots monasteries at Würzburg, at Ratisbon, and elsewhere in Germany. For Protestant Scots, there is a fairly substantial trade going on with northern Germany, with the old Hanseatic cities, with Hamburg, places like that. But you don't see the same you don't see an outward movement of people on quite the same scale as you do to France. Mm-hmm. I think you do suggest there are more Scottish Catholic institutions on the continent than there are Protestant Catholic, uh, Protestant educational institutions in Scotland itself. Isn't that right? By one? By numbers. And to some extent, that's perhaps a polemical and a misleading statement. There were more (laughs) educational institutions for Scottish Catholics on the continent. They had far fewer numbers of students, if I can. Yes, yes. But yes, there were a huge number. There's Rome, Dewey, Paris, Salamanca. Salamanca. Let's see if I can remember any others. And then there's the monasteries, Würzburg, Regensburg, Erfurt. Oh, I almost certainly have left one off the list. But mm. there are these institutions of Scottish learning spread across Western and Southern Europe. Okay, so we've, we've established this foundation, uh, this cultural geography, and we, we're, uh, we've managed to get about 40 minutes into this conversation, uh, having only done the foundation, but that's all right. It's a big foundation. Um, let's do, uh, let's, why don't you run through one or two case studies? Let's consider the, the, the whole question of the ancient monarchy and how the minds of this uh, first Scottish Enlightenment apply, apply themselves to the problem of the ancient monarchy, which is actually a hilarious chapter in many ways. Well, thanks for <laughs> bringing it up, Al. I'm glad you think it's funny. I think it's hilarious as well. Uh, so the ancient monarchy is a phrase which I've, to be honest, at this stage, I can't even remember if I've coined it or adopted it from somebody else, but it's the phrase I've used as a... It sounds yeah. properly Scottish. It does. Well, absolutely. It's, it's the phrase I've used to refer to what you might think of as a long-running intellectual debate, intellectual battle from the 1680s into the 1720s. And what's really at the root of it is the question of how old is Scotland's monarchy? How old is Scotland's royal dynasty? There are 
humanist historians from the early 16th century onwards who tell a very pleasing narrative about a hundred some kings going back to 330 BCE when Fergus McFrecker first comes over from <laughs> Ireland. It's a narrative which is central to Scottish identity throughout the early modern period. But starting in the 1680s, people start asking, what exactly is the evidence? What evidence do we have for these hundred odd kings? What evidence do we have for this touted claim that Scotland is the oldest monarchy in Europe? And it's when people start asking those questions of medieval sources that the ancient monarchy debate blooms. So I suppose to start with, if you've ever been to Edinburgh and you've ever been to Holyrood Palace, you'll know that tours of the palace end with a long state hall of state, which is lined with portraits of monarchs. You also notice, if you looked at them at all, that they're actually portraits of about the same four people in different fancy dress over and over. Of course, <laughs> they're not contemporary. They're portraits of these hundred-odd monarchs. They're part of Charles II's establishment of Stuart legitimacy. But pretty much even as these portraits are being painted, they're being challenged. The historicity, the authenticity of these individuals is being challenged. And it comes out, actually, of other debates to do with the origins of the church being conducted out with Scotland. But William Lloyd, a bishop in the English church, realizes that some aspects of the Scottish narrative tied up in the works of early modern Scottish historians are affecting his case for the antiquity of episcopacy. So almost by the by, he starts a demolition job on the Scottish historians. This then leads the king's advocate, George Mackenzie, who I've mentioned before, to come up with a riposte and basically accuse Lloyd of treason for even daring to suggest such a thing. This brings other figures, other Englishmen, Scots, Irishmen into the debate, and you get a lengthy back and forth, which for a long time results in a draw, or at least in mutual misunderstanding and a refusal to give ground. But it lays bare the incredibly flimsy nature of these 16th century histories of the ancient Scottish past that lays bare the inadequacy of received tradition. And it's that weak point and what people do with that weak point then that's one of the central parts of my narrative. So what do they do with it? Well, what they do is first they question it. They start unpicking it. But then in 1729... A Scottish priest named Thomas Ennis spends most of his life in Paris, writes a critical essay on the ancient inhabitants of Northern Britain. These two unassuming little uh, quarto volumes in which he lays out all the reasons for why we should discount the whole thing completely. But he does more than that. Other people have done this as well. He also partly because he has access to manuscripts in French libraries, which other writers in the debate haven't had access to, he also is able to say what actually happened. He's the first person who lays the foundations for a modern understanding of the Picts as a separate people, for a modern understanding of the Dalriotic Scots and their migration from Ireland, and what the Dalriotic kingdom was actually like for the union of these two monarchies, and for how that gradually evolved into the medieval Scotland we're now familiar with. So Innes then... Ex uses this moment of uncertainty, this vacuum in how Scottish history is being understood to create what really is the foundation for our modern narrative. 
So you have another case, another chapter devoted towards the creation of the Scottish canon, which is an incredibly important moment. Um, what do you mean by, what is the Scottish canon and how did these people go about creating it? Well, by the Scottish canon, I mean the set of predominantly literary texts, which have gradually assumed canonical status in the way Scotland and the way others out with Scotland perceive the country and perceive its literature. Like any canon, it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that forms gradually, but it's also something that doesn't form by chance. I mean, there are very specific reasons why we have some works canonical and some works not in any literary tradition. And in Scotland, much more so than I think I would ever have expected when I start this project, started this project, the reason why we've canonized many of the earlier writers we have is because they were tools in larger debates about Jacobitism, hmm. about royal legitimacy, and about the nature of what really constituted Scottish culture at the beginning of the 18th century. So how did these people go about creating, deciding which, 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 what was in and what was out? Well, in a way, it's the simplest thing imaginable. You simply print it. You print it, but you print it in <laughs> such a way that it has cultural authority. This is actually one of the really interesting things, because this creation of a Scottish canon happens right around the time we're starting to see the emergence of national canons and the emergence of a vernacular text, Shakespeare, say in an English example, being treated as on the same level as a classical text, as a Greek or Roman text. And that's what they're doing here. People like Thomas Ruddiman and Robert Freeburn and the various printers and scholars at the very beginning of the 18th century are editing the works of earlier writers, George Buchanan, Arthur Johnson, or Florence Wilson, and they're editing them the way you would a classical text. They're providing elaborate apparatus for explaining the text, learned prefaces. They're situating it in a format which signals its canonicity to readers. And even if contemporary readers may not necessarily have agreed with that, the impact of printing those texts in that way has been really long-standing. It's carried them over generation after generation until they've subtly sunk into our consciousness. That even mm -hmm. if we may not actually read George Buchanan that much now, if we've had any education in Scottish literature, we have this vague understanding that he was somebody important. And that's because of the impact of this canon building in the 18th century. So I want to begin to uh, wrap up now, um, and I wanted to ask you um, briefly: What was the scholarly impact of the first of this first Scottish Enlightenment, and and what other impacts? Like, for example, I, was, I couldn't help but thinking as I read um, the chapters on the um, the ancient monarchy uh, chapter, which we haven't got into on. Um, chronicling the ancient structures of the uh, Scottish landscape or the Scottish can. I couldn't help thinking about the Ossian controversy. Yes. Which now makes a lot more sense as not something that's that that's continuing a long-standing conversation about Scottishness and ancientness and uh, where Scots come from, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It makes no sense uh, in sort of it at least didn't make sense to me in Adam Smith's uh, Scotland. Uh, makes a lot more sense in 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 this Scotland that you describe. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's a product of well, it's a product of both. It's a product of the Scotland I've described here, and then it's a product of the, I hate to use the term proto-romantic, but the sensibility of 
the later Scottish Enlightenment. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that 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 way, Ossie and I, you always see that as a proto-romantic, but now I see it also as a callback to this existing sort of um, this this toing and froing, this deep cogitation and and angst about Scottish origins. Exactly. Exactly. It's one possible response to this enduring mm-hmm. problem of. What are the Scots? Where do we come from? What does that make us? How does that make? How should we understand ourselves now? And I think that is part and parcel of the larger scholarly impact, which is it provides one set of answers, which are not necessarily universally adopted, but it also provides a huge amount of, I suppose, raw material, if you will. It provides quarries from which later scholars can work. It provides foundations on which later scholars can build. And When we look at the edifice of Scottish cultural history now, it's very easy not to see where it came from. But once you start picking the steps apart and seeing who's indebted to who, the scholarly impact of this period is actually immense. It underpins so much of how today we understand the Scottish past. So you say, right, let me me quote you to yourself, a small group of outsiders quote, collectively transformed their country's intellectual landscape and disseminated that transformation through a far wider public sphere than that to which they themselves belong. What does that suggest to us about the processes of cultural change? And we've already talked about center and periphery and and why that might always apply. Are there other things that this might tell us about cultural change? I think there are other things that that it might tell us about cultural change. And to some extent, there are things that are directly contrary to what I imagined when I started this project. I'm not not a Carlylean hero worshipper by any means. But what did strike me over the course of the project was the the difference made by a relatively small group of individuals. I think what it does tell us about cultural change, at least cultural change within a relatively rarefied intellectual sphere, is that a great deal can be achieved by a few persuasive voices. And to some extent, a great deal can be achieved even by unpersuasive voices if they're saying sufficiently <laughs> interesting things. Yeah, and it helps also if they're bankrolled by Aberdeen merchants. Well, exactly, yes. And and great landowners in the Northeast. Um, now, what struck me also was the, the need for money at the right time in the right way. Yes, um, this is a continual theme. In a way, as you'd expect of any group of people who are to some extent outsiders, who are living precarious positions and don't have the infrastructure of the state to support them. Money is yeah. crucial. And, and, it, and it, it, of course, because they are always living in precariously, it doesn't take that much. No. No, surprisingly little to keep them going. And certainly in terms of publication, then the key is subscription. Finding people who will say, this sounds like an interesting book. I will give you 21 shillings for it and that much again on delivery. Go off and write it. Mm -hmm. Um, You are engaged in uh, your own own work of of cultural transmission, um, the Pathfoot Press. Could you describe that uh, to to the listener? I I was enchanted to find it on your your homepage, uh, and we'll link to this in the show notes. But what's the Pathfoot Press, and what do you do, and how does that uh, square with the rest of Kelsey Jackson Williams' intellectual interests? Oh, well, thank you. So the Pathfoot Press is the University of Stirling's Center for Letterpress Learning and Teaching. So letterpress, letterpress? just to refresh everyone, is (laughs) the traditional process of printing. You have movable type, you have small bits of lead type, you gradually put them together to form a page, you stick that in a large wooden or metal machine, apply some ink, stick some paper in, uh, press the paper vigorously into contact with the lead type, 
And if you've done things right, you end up with what looks like the page of a book. So uh, I basically teach uh, traditional letterpress processes as well as general literature classes. And I try to encourage people to use it as an artistic form, as a form of, of cultural and intellectual transmission. And to, if they're scholars, also be aware of what those physical processes can tell us about how, how ideas and how books are transmitted in the early modern period. What do they tell you about how books are transmitted in the early modern period? They tell me that it's very easy to underestimate what it takes to make a book. A book is a mm -hmm. hard thing to make. It takes months. It takes hundreds of hours of labor. It's expensive. It takes surprisingly complex ingredients. To produce a book is hard, is expensive, and is often going to be financially unrewarding. And I think that should encourage us to maybe think differently, maybe value more any individual book from the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it, it also, uh, one of the things that I remember reading in Edmund Morgan's uh, biography of Benjamin Franklin, he pointed out that due to the nature of uh, early modern printing, Franklin was, he, he, he was built. Oh, yeah. uh, early printing is, is, is hard work. It's uh, physically laborious. Um, carrying type up and down stairs, let alone actually pressing it out, it takes it out of you. You've got a nice wait, late 19th century letter press that's you know, mechanically advanced. Um, the 18th century, uh, but it still takes it out of you, and uh, 18th century presses even more so. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, Pathfit at the moment is trying to uh, get further back into our letterpress history, I suppose you could say, and is hopefully going to be building the first replica 18th century wooden press in Scotland sometime in the next year. <laughs> That's fantastic. What, what press do you use now? It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. It's uh, a Colombian press from about 1860. It's actually, <laughs> the Colombian has an interesting story behind it. It was designed by an English immigrant to America. And so it has the lovely, the American eagle and all of these classical symbols uh, yeah, of American does. culture on it. American printers weren't particularly interested in it. They thought their cheap wooden presses were just fine, and they didn't need to pay hundreds of pounds for a fancy iron press. So most Colombian presses were actually sold in the UK. And in fact, our version, our particular example, was made by uh, some uh, metal founders in Edinburgh. Hmm. Um, how did you get interested in, in letterpress printing? Uh, it goes back uh, to when I was a student. When I was at Oxford, uh, one of the things I had to do for my master's degree was take a bibliography course, which involved oh, yeah. a day doing traditional printing with the printer at the Bodleian Library, who was Paul Nash at that time. Mm -hmm. We got to chatting. I liked it liked Paul. We ended up working with each other for a bit while I was at Oxford, uh, my wife as well. Uh, and then later on, when I moved to Sterling, uh, I discovered more or less by chance that this press and some other printing equipment was left over from an earlier moment of printing at the university about 30 years before I came, uh, got it out of storage, got it working, and the path that press was born. <laughs> Well, my guest today has been Kelsey Jackson-Williams. He's a lecturer in early modern literature at the University of Stirling and author most recently of The First Scottish Enlightenment, Rebels, Priests, and History, published by Oxford University Press. Kelsey, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me, Al. 
for more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.